it will arise as once before, in ages past when magic soared, passing o'er the world shore to shore, the wind, the fury again shall roar. Welcome to the Swan Song Podcast by Eamon Cottrell and Brian Stallings. The Swan Song Podcast is an episodic audiobook for the fantasy novel John Swansong and the Parada Isle. Episode 2 The wind whirled through John's sandy hair as he ran past the giant sila trees on his way up the mountain path. Goth had told him that, years ago, shavine and undye root could grow further down at the base of the mountain. But ever since the weather had changed, the summit was the only place they were certain to be found. He needed to hurry if he wanted to finish picking the herbs by midday. John didn't slow as the path grew steeper. The cool air felt good on his face as beads of sweat formed on his forehead. The path got tougher from here on. Few people ever came this high. At one particularly large sila, he turned off the path. The tangled overgrowth only lasted a minute, though. John emerged from the forest onto a rocky ledge. My ledge, he thought. John liked to be alone. He always had a hard time making friends and never felt comfortable with the other children his age on Labrie. This ledge was his special place. He could lose hours sitting on the ledge, whistling into the wind, making pinwheels from dry leaves, and watching them spin errantly through the breeze as they drifted down. He kneeled down to catch his breath and looked out from the heights. Squawk! John started when a gull landed beside him on the ledge. It looked up at John with his head cocked to one side. John smiled. I guess I'm not all alone. He pinched off a bit of bread from his satchel and tossed it to the bird. He could see almost all of Labrie from here. The thatch roof houses that most of the town lived in were on this side of the village, but he could see beyond them to the docks. Most of the men were out in their fishing boats, but still there was plenty of activity. The other boys his age would stay behind to sell yesterday's leftover catch and prepare for today's. John wished Pa would let him help, but Pa sent him to work with Goth instead. Go pick flowers with the girls, John, he could hear Wren's snide remarks. John tried to pick out his father's sail from the boats he could see fishing just outside the bay. All the fishermen tended to throw their nets in mostly the same area. They stopped just past the break in the bay, beyond where the land curled in and formed the mouth of Labrie's Bay. They were far enough out to catch schools, but not so far they couldn't make it back to Labrie if a gust storm popped up. Pa was always talking about how he used to sail far out, overnight trips even. Now he said it was too dangerous. John lifted his hand to block the climbing sun from his eyes. There were over a dozen ships out there now. At this distance, it was hard to distinguish one from the other. All of Labrie's fishermen's ships were mostly the same. Single-sail schooners with net rigs on the front and storage in the back to keep the day's catch. Most were worked by two or three townsfolk, usually the fisherman and his sons. From this distance, even the larger four-man boats looked the same as his father's little schooner. Squinting, he thought he could see the red hull of Pa's boat. It is him, he thought. Rowan, his father, had his boat anchored a little to the north of the main group of fishermen. Pa always knew the best spots. He could read the currents better than the others. Because of that, he would move his boat to the perfect spot to catch the schools as they first came in range, allowing him to fill his nets much faster and fuller than the other fishermen. That's why Pa could work alone and still haul in a big enough catch to compete with the bigger boats. It seemed that someone was copying him, though. Today, a ship had set up even farther north than Rowan. John could see a sail beyond even where his father anchored. Dangerously far out. Some of the other fishermen resented Rowan's skill. Whoever it was, they were risking their life to try and one-up his father. Probably Wren's dad, John thought wryly. Wren McElvoy was John's age and a jerk. He constantly picked on John, making fun of him for his blonde hair and green eyes. He said that John's father was too poor of a fisherman to afford a real boat. 
Wren's dad had one of the four-person schooners. It must have bothered the McElvies that even though they had a bigger boat and all three of Wren's older brothers worked it, Rowan still outfished them on his little ship. John chuckled to himself as he looked out. The boat past his father's had already turned back towards Labrie. A little early for that. Must have gotten scared at the storms, John smiled. He stood up and tossed the goal another breadcrumb. The sail on the boat was getting bigger as it came closer, much bigger. Wait, not sail. Sails! The ship had two large triangular sails, one in front and one in back. He could see it more clearly now. It was moving much faster than the Labrie ships. John knew that ship. There was only one ship like that that visited Labrie. The Jasmine. It had been over a year since his father's old friend Abram had visited Labrie to buy up all the Bursla cloth. The weavers in town had been worried that their stores would rot this year in disuse. But Abram had come after all. John was excited. He loved listening to his stories of the ocean adventure on the high seas. John also had unfinished business with the ship's gunner, Tice. He turned back to the ocean and made his way back to the path. He had a new reason for haste. He hoped Goth would let him go early so he could go see the Jasmine's crew unload. A few hundred more feet of climbing, and he would reach the summit where his prize was waiting. The mountain he was on was not the tallest peak on Labrie, but it was one of the more dangerous trails once you reached the summit. What was a sure-footed trail near the bottom became a steep ascent of shifting pebbles and loose dirt at the top. For the final span, John shifted his satchel to his back and went down on all fours using his hands as much as his feet. John came to the overhang that was his goal. He grabbed a branch to steady himself and swung over a boulder. There were several small alcoves situated around the summit, all of which were teeming with shavine, salt lichen, and rare mountain wildflowers. And of course, there were stalks of undye roots sprouting out from the crevices all around him. There was not very much room, but so long as John kept a few feet from the edge, he'd be safe. Stooping down, he carefully pried up two of the shavines just like Goth had shown him. Very little vegetation could withstand the stark windy climate at the top of the mountain. Shavine and undye roots survived by pulling the nutrients they needed from the sea air. He handled them gently, determined not to make the same mistake as last time, and bruised the soft green and yellow stalks beyond use. He wrapped them in cloth and put them in his satchel. A twig snapped behind him. He whipped around. Who's there? he called. He tightened the rope that held his satchel and drew the small blade he always carried. Rat? He'd snuck up on him before, and John was in no mood for his games just now. He made his way back down cautiously. He climbed back out to the ledge for one more look out to the sea. He longed for the day where he would take up his father's sails, though the dark shroud hovering over the face of the water to the east scared him as much as everyone else. Would it ever clear? John heard something, and he instinctively ducked. Idiot, he thought. Only one narrow trail from the ledge to the mountain trail. Why'd I come back out here? Now I'm trapped. A rock whizzed from the thicket up ahead, and he ducked again. It flew far overhead. Well, at least now he knew who it was. Wren. Two more rocks came at him, but only one was thrown well. It was well enough to hit him, too. Bastard, John cursed before thinking. Wren had that effect on him. I'd move away from that ledge if I were you, yelled Wren, still out of view. Come on back to the trail, flower picker. Two more rocks came flying towards him. Where were they? John strained his eyes, but he couldn't see the two bullies. He knew he had to act quickly. The more Wren got riled up, the worse it could be. John grabbed several rocks of his own and launched four of them high into the air so they would fall behind Wren and West. He hoped. He watched them drop into the trees. He waited one more breath and then launched two more straight towards where he guessed they were. John burst into a run. He sprinted down the dirt path that zigzagged through the woods. He barely avoided getting tangled in a low-hanging bay of vine as he flew around a turn. He had to rip his arm free of one vine, stirring up a light yellow mist of dank, sour-smelling veia blooms in the process. The vine's flowers were pretty enough, but their odor was awful. 
Sure enough, Wren and West were waiting for him, kind of. His barrage of rocks had indeed startled them enough that they had taken cover. They had just come out from behind two silent trees when John whipped around the corner and collided with them, knocking all three of them to the ground. You bastard! Wren yelled at him as he clawed at John. John kicked up dirt in his face and writhed out of his grip. He felt Wren's fingernails tear into his leg. One more kick and he felt the satisfying thunk of a boot on flesh. He was free. He scrambled to his feet and was about to smile to himself when a shape moved towards him quickly from the left. West! The boy swung a large stick at John and it smacked him hard across the side. Ha! West cried out as in victory as John hunkered down with his hand over his stinging side. He had one more rock, though, and he hurled it at West's chest with all his might. Oof! West was bending over, and Wren, teary-eyed from where John had struck his face, was regaining his composure and getting to his feet when John turned back to the trail and took off. The rest of the way down the base slopes of Bowden was a blur. John's side and leg both hurt, and he developed a cramp before he got down. But he was afraid to slow down. He flew up to Goth's cabin. As he tore through the door, the thick, sweet smell of tobacco made his eyes water for a moment as his breathing slowed down and he adjusted to Goth's pipe. Kicking the door shut behind him, he looked to the window towards the mountain path. No sign of either of the boys. John had always been fast, and it had saved him more times than this one. Why so excited? Goth did not turn. His rocking made a small squeaking sound every time he went back. A loose floorboard. Goth's white hair fell disheveled to his shoulders. I've got them all, John said through rushed breaths. Pulling out the shave vine, John placed the stalks on the table and looked at Goth, who was rocking back and forth slowly in his wooden chair by the fireplace. I said, why so excited? Goth repeated. John tried to slow his breathing down, but it only made his body seem to need more air than before. His words came out in short, uneven bursts. I saw a ship, probably in the harbor soon. It's Abram, and he hasn't been here in forever. I'm going to go meet him and the crew when they make harbor. John's face was red and his wavy hair was a mess and sprinkled with dirt and small bits of leaves. I see. Goth took the pipe out of his mouth and blue and gray smoke escaped his lips as he turned to John. That explains the excitement. What about your appearance? You look like you crawled down the mountain on your belly. John knew it was no use hiding the truth from Goth. He always managed to get you to spill it in the end. I ran into Wren and West, John said. Perfectly true. I see. Goth always said that when he was thinking about something. The silence that followed used to make John keep talking, but he'd learned his lesson enough times to know that if Goth really wanted to know something, he'd just ask. And if he didn't, well, John thought he was better off keeping something secret. It was embarrassing enough that he got bullied so often by Wren. He didn't want to bring Goth into his troubles. That would just be more fuel for the fire. John hoped Goth was satisfied and decided to change the subject. Can I go to the harbor to meet them? I've got more than what you asked for. He opened his satchel to prove his point. I'll need that vine prepared before you go, of course. The way that he spoke left no room for discussion. It was as though he already knew what John was going to do. John sourly did as he was bid. He went outside to Goth's well and pulled up a bucket of water, then turned to go back to the house. A breeze whisked leaves up and passed John as he was looking at the darkening clouds. Was it just his imagination, or did the weather seem to be changing several times each day? He figured it was nothing and went back to finish his chores. Inside, he eyed the shelf of glass containers, fossils, rolls of parchment and tools, many of which Goth had permitted him to use after careful instruction, and some of which he had been strictly forbidden to handle. Among the assortment of herbs, roots, and dried leaf mixtures that lined Goth's cavern were bundles of pitch black roots. The roots were two feet long, some as thin as straw and others as thick as bamboo. They appeared brittle, as though the slightest touch might snap them in two, but John knew otherwise. These were bundles of undye root. 
Undye was hard as rocks and was only useful after grinding it into the fine powder that sailors mixed with coal and sulfur to make smoke dust. What John didn't know was why Goethe had so many stockpiled here in his cabin. What Goethe didn't know was how many sprigs of undyed John had kept for himself. The old man couldn't have expected a teenager with free reign of Mount Bowden and a working knowledge of its many plants not to stash away a few prizes for his own amusement and experimentation. And what of it? It wasn't as though John knew how to properly prepare the smoke dust, even if he was ever able to swipe some sulfur and coal off the jasmine. He had quizzed Tice about it last summer and thought that he would have given him a bit of the smoke itself if they had had any on board. Alas, they had stopped at Labrie first on their way to the plates instead of on the way back. John's curiosity had grown when Tice produced a nugget of black coal from inside his vest. It had shone in the dim light of the fish hook, looking a precious stone to John before Tice had pocketed it again. Clouds had settled overhead, and the flicker of the flames on Goth's walls reminded him of the fire burning in the fish hook that night. John looked to the cauldron as its contents began to bubble. Shavine oil was very important to life on Labrie. People claimed they didn't need oil to grow crops in years past, but for as long as John could remember, any garden planted without it produced tiny withered vegetables. Pa had managed to grow some decent-sized sweet potatoes once, but even then, when they ate them, they tasted bitter. Since then, Pa had used the shea oil, too. I don't know why you're so anxious to go see those sailors anyway. Never know who or what's going to pull into the docks these days. The sea isn't safe. Any decent person can feel it. And all one's got to do is look east to see the darkness gathering. It's the tainted ones doing, that is. The air's too heavy. Hasn't always been. Grows thicker every year since the day of a thousand storms. Goth squinted as he spoke. He was looking out the window, and John let him ramble. What else could he do? He shucked the shavine stalk by stalk, discarded the husks, and threw the tubing into the cauldron. Be listening to me. I don't think folks pay attention to half the things they should. Take the tide, for instance. The tide comes in a full yard higher than a year ago. That's just not right, I tell you. I haven't been working extra in the creeks for the fun of it, you know. John glanced up at Goth when he mentioned the creeks. Goth seemed to be talking more to himself and the mountain out his window than to John, he thought. He did that. John was certainly ready for the tides to get back to normal. This wasn't the first time that Goth had mentioned them as being the culprit behind John's extra hours in the fields. The little streams that cut through the farmland in the middle of Labrie had been overseen by Goth for many years now. He had originally rerouted Smoke Creek into many small tracks to keep the soil fertile, and later he began experimenting with the different farming oils. He had split the creek up to ensure that all the farmland received a fair share of the island's lifeblood, but now John had to bust his back damming it at different points on different days to keep from flooding the land that was already sown for the season. Why aren't you stirring that? John quickly began stirring the pot of water in Shavine. He muttered an apology, but Goth was already back lost in his thoughts. It didn't take a genius to figure out that something was up with the weather these days. John knew that most of the village folk shrugged off the so-called ramblings of Goth, accepting him merely as an elder whose wisdom had long since run its course, and whose primary contribution to the good of the Brie remained his unequaled and undisclosed recipes for farm oils. If truth be told, John had been making all the shea oil for the past two seasons, and he gathered all the herbs, vines, and roots that Goth used for the rest of his oils and remedies. From time to time, Goth would dismiss John for the afternoon with instructions to gather whatever ingredients he required for the next day. Some of the items had to be fresh. Shavine, hyacinth, witch hazel, and epidemium were some of the more common. With the exception of shavine, the fresh items were usually used for skin salves, stress relievers, and poultices, though fewer and fewer made the trek from town down to Goth's cabin. John didn't understand why the whole island was slowly forgetting about Goth slowly moving on with their own ways and trusting that the tides would rise and fall as they always had. 
The land would yield crop as it always had. The sick would heal as they always had. The old would die as they always had. It was the way of things, he supposed. They were letting Goth die, in a way, he thought. And he didn't like it, not one bit. Pa had told him about the early days when Labrie was being settled. Goth was there in the beginning, and he helped clear the land to be farmed. When the great drought came several years later, they tried bringing buckets of water from the bay inland to water the fields, but the brackish water was still too salty. No one knew where Goth got the idea to make shea oil, but he was always curious and eager to experiment. He was an explorer and a respected, albeit quiet and oft-withdrawn, member of the village. For years, he was Labrie's counselor and healer. They owed him so much, everything even. And yet here he was, muttering out the window to the shadow of a mountain he was too old to climb, about the tide and curses and bad omens. Was he trying to conjure up a new need for his expertise, a new disaster that he could remedy? Maybe this was the right way of things, that he should slowly be forgotten. But John simply couldn't believe that. Goth was looking out the window with one hand on his hip and the other guarding his pipe. He leaned a little when he stood still, not terribly, but enough for John to notice it every time he caught Goth lost in thought. Goth's head was tilted to the left, which added to his uneven posture, and after watching him for a couple of minutes, John feared that the old man may have fallen asleep standing up. A wisp of smoke drifting up from this pipe proved otherwise, and Goth cocked his head. John thought he could always sense when he was being watched. Those aren't ordinary clouds, John. They're the fell tides drifting in, and I don't like the feel of it. He paused and shifted his weight to his right leg, still not looking at John. I'll have to tell you of your father and his run-in with the Paradas soon. Goth spoke softly, to himself as much to John. John wasn't sure how to reply. Goth rarely carried on conversation outside of his usual bickering or instructions. My pa and the Paradas? He nearly shouted. What do you mean? Goth turned then and blinked, looking straight through John, and in his usual gruff voice said, Well, that took long enough. Bring me some wood before you hurry out, do you heed? But what were you talking about? John asked. How could my pa have had dealings with them? I thought he'd lived here on Labrie all his life. Did he used to sail past the border isles after all? I knew it. Not now, John. I've spoken too much and out of turn. Goth's stern voice left no room to argue. Aye, sir. John took the leather glove from the mantle and heaved the boiling cauldron from where it hung above the fire. He gathered up two armfuls of wood he had chopped earlier in the week and laid them in a chest by Goth's hearth. Before walking out the door, he looked over to Goth again, but it appeared as though he had said all he intended to say for that day. He had turned back to the window, pipe smoke drifting up as he took a long, slow drag. <laughs>